Turn with me back to John chapter 12. John 12, verse 31. While you're finding that, I'll tell a little story about our family because it actually relates to this topic. When our oldest kids were very little, like little, like little tiny, like toddlers and three, four years old, we went to a musical on the life of Christ called The Promise. It's a tremendously well-done uh, presentation, terrific live music. The sets are amazing. Costumes, they, they, they do a, a version in the state of Texas. They do a version in Branson, Missouri that's just out of this world. During the portrayal of Christ's betrayal and arrest and crucifixion, one of the characters that shows up is Satan. And he's dressed in a pretty scary red suit. And so we took the, ki- the kids so they could see the life of Christ. We wanted them to be impacted by Christ. And they were impacted, but mostly what they were impacted was by what they called the red guy. And not just that night, and not just the following month, but for months, we had long, serious, somber conversations about the red guy. Very concerned children. Is the red guy real? What is the red guy's name? Even when we told them, they still called him the red guy. Where does the red guy live? And most importantly, does the red guy know where we live? <laughs> Lots of questions. Well, today we're going to answer some more questions about the red guy, who isn't really red, by the way, for all the children listening. We don't want to lead you astray. But specifically, as we've started looking at Satan and the schemes, I want to take a big picture look right now and talk about Satan in the world today. Satan in the world today, if I had been thinking earlier, I would have called this, what in the world is Satan doing? Which is what he's doing. I want to give you a big picture about Satan's activity and the context of his activity specific to our time. And again, if you're new to Grace Bible Church, our normal practice is to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible But this series necessarily has us jumping around the scripture a bit, and we will go to several different passages. We'll use John 12, 31 as our starting point. It really sets the tone for this important topic. John 12, 31 again says, this is the Lord Jesus. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When Jesus made this statement, he's hours from the cross. We've already seen in previous messages that the ruler of this world is Satan. And that's our focus. The ruler of this world, what in the world is Satan doing? And what I'd like to do is just give you a very, very big picture, like we're flying at 40,000 feet, and we'll come down slowly. But my point today is to give you really a broad overview, and we'll get more specific as the weeks go. So what I'd like to do is just talk to you about uh, some big picture concepts. We'll start very high and come down to some details. First of all, I want to start with what we'll call the ages of redemptive history. The ages of redemptive history. And we have to do this to lay a foundation to see what Satan is doing in this age. Jesus said that Satan is the ruler of this world. We have to start with understanding that world is used in numbers of ways in the New Testament. This isn't comprehensive by any means, but a couple of ways it's used. It just speaks of the earth and its inhabitants that we're in the world. We live on the world. It also speaks of the institutions and beliefs of sinful mankind, a world's system, the the system of the world. Um, For example, uh, the Greek word ion, we get eon from this. Sometimes it's translated world, but it's more accurately uh, speaking of an age or a present age. And so we have the earth and its inhabitants. We have the system, 
But what I want to talk about today is the age. So when the New Testament speaks of world, often it is the age, this particular time. Uh, For example, Titus 2, beginning in verse 12, says we're to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in, I own, this present age, in this time. And then verse 13 says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What does that clearly show? Clearly shows that this present age is not the kingdom age of the future. It's not the kingdom age. We're waiting for that. There are aspects of the kingdom on earth happening now. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so the church, as the representative of Christ, we don't take our cues from earth as the church. We take our cues from heaven because that's where the kingdom still is primarily. And so if the Apostle Paul talked about this present age, what does that tell us logically? There are ages before and ages after. And so what I'd like to do is just highlight these ages of redemptive history But just so you know, these aren't arbitrary. There is a definite time marker. There is a a, a sign, a signal that each age has ended and the next has begun. But I'll tell you what that is in a moment. Let's just walk through these. There aren't any really standard labels for these ages. So I chose some labels that would help you remember what they mean. So they might be a little long, but I, I want you to remember them. The first age we'll call the age of sinless perfection. The age of sinless perfection. This is Adam and Eve. This is the garden in the country of Eden. They enjoyed perfect communion and fellowship with God. They walked with God in the garden. They were with him in perfect adoration, perfect worship, perfect communion. No death, no disease, nothing of that sort. But then you have the fall of man into sin. And that brings us to the next age. We'll call this one the post-fall age of conscience. The post-fall age of conscience. This begins in Genesis 4 with the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. Cain was sentenced to be a wanderer on the earth, and he begged God not to allow others to take vengeance on him for his murder. And so God put some sort of mark on Cain. We're not told what it is, but it was supposed to indicate to everyone around him, do not harm him. So what was God doing? He was relying on the consciences of mankind to rule the day and to provide the restraint from sin. To see the mark and say, oh, my conscience is bothering me. I will not harm this man because God said not to. But of course, we know the story. Man's sin nature wouldn't abide with that. So we move on to the next age. The next age we'll call the age of human government and the patriarchs. That's a long name, but it helps us understand the main uh, ideas here. The age of human government and the patriarchs. Genesis chapter 9. God instituted human government by saying that if Man sheds blood, then by man shall his blood be shed. And that is, by the way, the one job of the government given to uh, mankind by God, and that is to shed the blood of the evildoer, to provide discipline for those who break the law. We also see then that the coming of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs from whom would come the nation of Israel. So we have the age of human government and patriarchs. Then we move on to the age we'll call the age of the law of Moses. The age of the law of Moses. This is Israel. At Mount Sinai, God made covenant with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to form the nation of Israel. Israel was given a duty. They were given the responsibility. According to Exodus 19, they were to be a kingdom of priests. In other words, they were to make God known to the rest of the world. That was their job. 
This covenant was expounded in the law of Moses, and it would last. It was, a, it was a covenant that would expire. It would expire when Messiah comes to earth. And then we get to the age we're familiar with, the church age. We know it because we're in it. Because of the cross of Christ, Gentiles all over the world are coming to faith to be included in the kingdom of God. We'll come back to this in more detail. And then we would move on at the end of the church age to the messianic age. The Messianic Age. This is the age where Christ will have returned to the earth. He'll set up his kingdom. Revelation 20 says six different times for a thousand years. And then we get to the final age. This is the age of the new heavens and the new earth. This is when the age of sinless perfection has now returned. And the ages of the earth have come full cycle. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 3, speaks of this age. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, by the way, why do we call this redemptive history? Well, very simply, how do we start? The age of sinless perfection. How do we end? This age of sinless perfection Redemptive history says God is redeeming what he began to bring it back again. That's redemptive history. But how do we know when one age ends and another one begins? I told you I'd tell you. Here it is. Each age ends with massive death and disaster. Every age ends with massive death and disaster. The age of sinless perfection It ended with the spiritual death of Adam and Eve and the curse brought into the world that has resulted, you ready for this, in 100 billion deaths since then. You have the post-fall age of conscience. How does it end? It ends in Genesis 6-5, and the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the post-fall age of conscience ends when God wipes out humanity in the great flood, save eight people. How about the age of human government and patriarchs? The age of human government and patriarchs ends when God slaughters the firstborn of all Egypt and then slaughters the entire Egyptian army. Because where does that bring us? That brings us to Mount Sinai, the age of the law of Moses, the age of Israel. How does the age of Israel end? Well, it's how our Old Testament ends. It ends with the decimation of Israel as she has millions slaughtered, many more carried away at the hands of the Babylonians, at the hands of the Assyrians, because of her continual century upon century of rebellion against God. And the age of the law of Moses ends with the worst death of all, the death of the words of God. And you have 400 years of silence from God. He doesn't speak. And of course, at that time, the Lord Jesus Christ is born into the world, and he lives his perfect life. He dies the death on the cross. He is resurrected from the dead, and he ascends into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit, which inaugurates the church age, the one we're in now. How will the church age end? The church age will end with the removal of all the living saints from the earth, the rapture, and with seven years of destruction and death, that Daniel 12, 1 says is a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time, otherwise known as the Great Tribulation. Christ will return. 
That brings us to the Messianic Age. How will the Messianic Age of a thousand years end? It ends when Satan is released once again to create rebellion and chaos. And a great army comes against Jerusalem and is wiped out by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we get to the new heavens and the new earth. The great white throne judgment has taken place. And now we get to the final age. And this one will never end. Remember, all the other ages end with death. Why will this one never end? Because death shall be no more. And that age goes on forever. The age of the new heavens and the new earth, the age of sinless perfection returns. Those are the ages of redemptive history as we fly really high over this. I want to focus now just a little bit on this present age. We'll come down just a little. And again, we have to lay some groundwork before we even get to what Satan is doing Now, the definitions of time periods and ages are made very clear by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. At the end of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, where he told us to go, therefore, into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he said, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the what? Age. Right. End of this present age. In fact, I want to show you how he defines this present age. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 13, just a few pages back. Matthew chapter 13. And while you're finding that, I want to tell you, this is the big picture. What is it that's unique about this age? What is it that makes it what it is today? Here it is. What is unique about this age is that there are two completely different classes of people which are not distinguishable with the naked eye. There are two classes of people, two different types of people with two different destinies. And this is much of the point of several of the parables of Matthew 13, three of them in particular. We have the parable of the sower, beginning in verse 3. And he told them many things in parables, saying the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears... Let him hear. Now, what's the point of this parable? This is one of the rare parables where you can just simply turn the page and Jesus explains it. In verses 18 through 23, he explains that Christ is the sower, the farmer. The seed is the gospel. And there are two groups of people. For most, the seed of the gospel is choked out and doesn't come to fruition. And for some, the seed of the gospel takes root and grows unto salvation. Look with me at verse 24, the parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. 
They gather the wheat into my barn. What's the point? Again, Jesus is the sower, the farmer. The enemy has planted weeds, sometimes called tares, among the wheat. And they look like wheat, but at the end of the age, what will happen? They'll be separated. Two types of people. One more, the parable of the net, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw the bad, threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, did you notice that in these three parables, Jesus develops the theology of the two types of people? We start with limited knowledge. The parable of the sower tells us that believers and unbelievers will be grown up together in this age. The parable of the weeds says there will be a separation at the end of the age. And the parable of the net tells us that this separation will result in the eternal torment of those who have rejected Christ. And so there's a development of this theology. In fact, we could summarize the whole section with verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. What are the two types of people? Those who are in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and those who will be shining like the sun. Now, there's another helpful passage to understand this present age. Turn with me back to the right to Ephesians chapter 3. And Ephesians 3 is going to tell us something new, something unique about this age. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and one of his purposes is to help them understand what they're to believe about this time as compared to a time that is to come. Ephesians 3, and we learn something new here, verses 1 and 2. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Let me stop right there for a minute. The stewardship of God's grace. In older English translations, stewardship uh, is, is rendered dispensation. So we get the name dispensationalists, right? Because we have understood that there are ages. That's one little tiny part of dispensationalism. But it's a stewardship. It's a dispensing of a certain age, of certain attributes of that age. And then in verse 3, here's the new information we get. There's a key word here. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has has now been revealed to his holy prophets, holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What is the mystery? The mystery that's been hidden is that it's not just Jews who get to be part of the kingdom. It's all peoples, the Gentiles. Now, yes, in the Old Testament, a Gentile could exercise faith in God. How did you do that? You became a Jew. That was the only way. You went to the nation of Israel. 
But the church age as we know it now is basically unknown in the Old Testament. Why, why is that? Well, it's hidden. It's a mystery. As far as the Old Testament is concerned, the very next thing to happen in redemptive history is the coming of Messiah. Notice I didn't say the return of Messiah. The return of Messiah is how we understand Scripture because we know he's already come one time. But when you read the Old Testament, it's, it's trial and tribulation and waiting and waiting and waiting. And the next thing that happens is that the Messiah comes and he rules the world. Well, we're here now and there's an age happening in between those two things. That is the mystery. Paul said in Romans 16, 25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel... And the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. This age isn't centered on the kingly reign of Christ on earth. Because that's not happening. What is this age centered on? This age is centered on the cross. And the bringing in of new citizens to the kingdom. Now, through all of this, we can see the relationship of the saved to God. This is my whole point here, though, in this section. What is the relationship of the unsaved to Satan in this age? What's the relationship of the unsaved to Satan still in this age? I want to give you a few ideas here about what the relationship of the unsaved to Satan is. First of all, Satan has hidden himself and his purposes from the unbelieving world. He's hidden himself. He's hidden his purposes from the unbelieving world. He's a deceiver. He's an imposter. I'll give you an example. We understand that that things like Satanism and witchcraft and occultic activities and black magic, all these things are, are concerning to us. But have you noticed that they never really gain a lot of traction? That they kind of go for a little bit and there's a big deal and then it kind of dies away. Why is that? Because that's not Satan's main tactic. He doesn't come out with a frontal assault. And frankly, Satanism is kind of hard on his main operating procedure because it brings him out in the open. He doesn't want to be out in the open. He's a deceiver. He wants to be closed down to where nobody knows he's here. Here's the second part of the fact that Satan has a relationship to the unsaved. Satan has a twisted fatherly relationship to the unsaved. He has a twisted fatherly relationship. What was his goal, as we saw in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 a couple of weeks ago? His goal is to be like God. And so what does Matthew 13, 38 say? Unbelievers are sons of the evil one. John 8, 44, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. Ephesians 2, 2 and 3, the unbeliever is called the sons of disobedience, the children of wrath. There is a twisted fatherly relationship. There's a third aspect of the fact that Satan has a, a relationship to the unsaved. Satan directs the disobedience of his children. Satan directs the disobedience of his children. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, he's called the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, that, that word work, this is important, this is key. It means to operate, it means to cause an action. We get our, our English word energy from this. But why is this so, so diabolical? Well, the very same Greek word that means energy is used in 1 Corinthians 12, 11. It says that Christians are empowered, same word, by the Holy Spirit. 
It's the same word used by Paul in Colossians 1.29 that he labors for the gospel, struggling with all of his energy. Same word that he powerfully works within me. Same word used in Ephesians 3.20 that the power of God is at work in us. This is why it's so diabolical. In some similar fashion that the Holy Spirit powerfully works in the life of the believer, so the unholy spirit, Satan, works directly in the lives of the lost. Holy Spirit works in the lives of the believer, the unholy spirit in the lives of the unbeliever. And in fact, here's a fourth aspect of his relationship to the unsaved. Satan's direction of the lost is aggressive. It's aggressive. Listen to 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are from God. There's the one type of person. Here's the other type. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I want to take this apart for a minute. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. First of all, this same concept is used dozens of times of you and I to speak of the Christian being in Christ. In Christ. And we understand the richness of that. We're encompassed by Christ. We're protected by Christ. We're in the will of Christ. We're in the heavenlies with Christ. We're baptized into the waters of Christ. We are raised up with Christ. We're in Christ. But the same word and the same concept is used here to say that the world is in Satan. In his influence. In who he is. is In all that he represents He's the inspiration and the power behind the evil acts of his children. There's a second observation, though. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is a word that means to recline and go to sleep. The children of Satan are unconscious of their relationship to Satan. They don't know it. 2 Corinthians 4 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is why those that you know, you can see in the media, you can see in public life, who are just wicked to the core, and yet, how do they come across as absolutely self righteous? And they have no idea that they're being directed, they're being manipulated. This unconscious condition is the direct result of Satan's power over them. And because of this, the gospel is veiled. What does it mean? It means that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, is muddied. It's confused. It's mixed up. It's changed. All you have to do is change the gospel just a little. And what did Paul say about that? It is a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. And Satan's work is to harden their heart. But never let it be said that a man could stand before God and say, it is not my fault I'm not saved because Satan confused me. No, they're still responsible. Ephesians 4.18 says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Listen to this. Due to their hardness of heart. Yes, Satan may have blinded them, but who will pay the price? Humanity will. That's why he has a twisted fatherly relationship with the unsaved. Because this father will ultimately spell their doom. And this lying in the power of the evil one, this asleep nature of the unbeliever, do you see why we desperately need the new birth? Why we need the doctrine of regeneration because what is regeneration? It is when the Holy Spirit lifts the unconscious, 
power of Satan off the unbeliever so that their eyes might be opened to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's also why it is the dumbest thing in the world for anybody to think that they could figure out how to come to Christ. They can't. They're asleep. Let's come a little closer. We have the ages of redemptive history. We have this present age. Let's talk about Satan's dominion in this age. Satan's dominion in this age. How does Satan have dominion? We have a lot of lists today, but we have to do this to lay this groundwork. How does Satan have dominion in this age? Here's a simple starting point. Satan is the head of the world system. He's the head of the world system. We already saw in John 12, 31, but Jesus says this also in John 14, 30, John 16, 11. He gives Satan the name, the ruler of this world. Older English translations say the prince of this world, that as Jesus is the prince of peace, so Satan is the prince of this world. So he's the head of the world system. There's another way Satan has dominion, and this might seem completely obvious, but we need to make sure and cover this. Satan's system is completely evil. Satan's system is completely evil. That seems obvious, but it's kind of hard for us to reconcile that with the blessings and the joys we see in the world. I mean, you didn't wake up today saying, I'm dreading the fact that every second of today will be pure wickedness. You didn't say, if you did, I'm glad you're here. This is the best place to be if you thought that. But... Scripture is very clear that God's general grace is, is kind to us. We receive good things. The Scripture is also clear. 2 Peter 1.4 says that the believer in Christ has escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of his sinful desire. 2 Peter 2.20 calls the world system defiling. They mean shameful, criminal, evil, tainted. You know, an unbelieving human being can sometimes do good things. It doesn't mean that they're gaining God's favor. But if you've broken down by the side of the road and an unbeliever stops and helps you, you you don't say to him, you child of Satan, what a wicked thing you have done to help me. No. But unlike his children, the father, Satan, is completely wicked and evil. He never does anything good. He never does anything good. Here's a third way Satan has dominion. He's been given limited access to the people of God. He's been given limited access to the people of God. One of the most chilling statements in all the New Testament. I still remember reading this as about an eight-year-old and being scared to death. Luke 22, 31, Jesus speaking to Peter says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. What? Satan can demand to have a believer? that he might sift you like wheat. That scared me. But then the next verse, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So there's limited access. The Apostle Paul was concerned. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. In context, This thorn in the flesh was probably a human irritant and antagonist in the church. So he's been given limited access to the people of God. So another way he has dominion, Satan causes the hatred of God's people. He causes the hatred of God's people. I I know all of you have conversations with unbelievers and, and, and you desire to reach out to them. But when the conversation reaches a certain point of asking them, why won't you come to faith in Christ? Sometimes you've made an enemy all of a sudden. 
And you wonder why that is. Well, here's why. 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The world system is headed by Satan, and thus the hatred for God's people in the world is headed by Satan. One more idea under the Satan having dominion in this age category here, and I, I wanted to make sure we hear this one last. Satan's rule of the world is limited and incapable. It's limited and incapable. My goal is not to send you away afraid. My goal is to send you away confident. Yes, Christians are dying every day. We're now, even in this country, experiencing persecution in diabolical ways we've never dreamed of. We never thought we would see in our lifetimes. But 1 John 4, beginning in verse 3, says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And our ultimate victory, 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Meaning that Satan's rule of the world is limited and ultimately it will be incapable, particularly over the believer. But if Satan has dominion in this age, it means he has power. And so let's fly down a little closer. Now we're getting closer to the treetops. Now, I want to talk to you about Satan's power in this age. I want to get more specific, and these are going to be very specific statements because that's just what the Bible teaches. Satan's power in this, in this age. First of all, Satan's power is equal to or greater than the archangel Michael. It's equal to or greater than the archangel Michael. All of you mathematicians love that phrase, equal to or greater than. We don't know which it is. That's why we say that. Revelation 12, 7, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, that is Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought back, meaning it was not a foregone conclusion who was going to win. Jude 9, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So in this particular instance, some dispute over the body of Moses, another topic for another day, Michael said, I'm not taking you on by myself. I'm getting help. Another way Satan, we see Satan's power. Satan's power is manifest in genius strategies. His power is manifest in genius strategies. Schemes of the devil, spoken of in Ephesians 6, verse 11, is a Greek word which means the methods or the methodology. It's not spontaneous. You're not walking along and... Satan goes, hey, look, there's a, there's a Christian. I think I'll drop a rock on his head. It's not a spontaneous. It's a, it's a method. It's a scheme. It's a plan. He's a mastermind strategist. And can I say this by way of warning? He's been deceiving the whole world for thousands of years. You've been learning about how to fight back against him for a year, a decade, a couple decades, maybe. Don't think by your intellect and your smarts you're going to take him on. You will not. You will lose. In fact, he's so strategic that Revelation 13 says that during the Great Tribulation, he'll convince the whole world to worship him for 42 months. Remember I told you that, that he doesn't really use the open strategy that much of Satanism and the occult and all of that. That's, that's, more, that's more not what he really does. But then he's going to convince the whole world for three and a half years to openly worship him. How else do we see his power as he has dominion. Satan's power is magnified by the fallen angels. Satan's power is magnified by the fallen angels. 
I actually tried to do the math once on the passages in Revelation that speaks of thousands of thousands and myriads of myriads, and it, it came out to be so many zeros that I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. Needless to say, the numbers of angels are almost endless. Revelation 12, 4 says a third of them are loyal to him. Now, why do we say Satan's power is magnified by the fallen angels? Well, we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that Satan is omnipresent. He's not everywhere present. Nor do we want to make the mistake of thinking that he's omnipotent, all-powerful. Nor do we want to make this mistake of thinking that he's omniscient, all-knowing. He is not any of those things. Now, just to be clear, he's more present than you are, he's more powerful than you are, and he's certainly smarter than you are. But he is not like God, and so instead he has millions upon millions of these angels, these fallen angels, these demons at his disposal in a hierarchy of wicked officers and soldiers. How about this one? Satan has the power of death. He has the power of death. How do we know this? He's the God of this world. How many people have defeated death? One, the Lord Jesus Christ. All others have lost. Death is Satan's dominion. Hebrews 2.14 says that Satan is, quote, the one who has the power of death. How else is he powerful? He has the power to deceive. He has the power to deceive. He deceived Eve, his greatest mastermind trick of all time. Subsequently, Revelation 12.9 says he's the deceiver of the whole world. And listen, by the way, disagreement in the world is a good thing. It means that somebody is right. When the whole world agrees on something, generally speaking, be careful. No matter how good it looks, be careful. It's a master stroke of Satan. How about this one? Satan has the power to persecute God's people. He has the power to persecute God's people. Jesus told the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Bigger picture, Satan has the power to indwell cities and nations. He has the power to literally indwell cities and nations. Jesus told the church at Pergamum in Revelation 2 that their city is where Satan's throne was. Pergamum is Greek for San Francisco, by the way. The center of evil in the world at that time. A city controlled completely by Satan. In Daniel 10.13, the angel told Daniel, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. The prince of the kingdom of Persia, this high-level demon, maybe even Satan himself, who is the spiritual head of Persia. Nations have demonic heads to them. And so his power in this world is great. But let's be clear. Satan's power may be equal to or greater than the archangel Michael, but the Holy Spirit's power is greater than Satan's. And Romans 11, 8, 11 reminds us that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. That the very same Jesus Christ who defeated Satan at the temptation, defeated him at the cross, will cast him into the lake of fire that spirit of Christ dwells in you. Satan's power may be manifest in genius strategies, but 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, we have the mind of Christ. You may think the thoughts of Christ. How? We have the word of God. 
which Hebrews 4.12 says is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What does that mean? Whatever genius strategy Satan comes up with, you can figure it out. You can. Satan's power may be magnified by the fallen angels, but Jesus promised in Matthew 25.41 that the eternal fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. There will be a day when you say, ta-ta. How about this one? Satan may have the power of death, but Christ has rendered Satan powerless for the believer in Christ. And we can say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? What is that? That's a theological... The death of Christ substituted for our eternal death and thus Satan has no power. What's the worst he can do to you? He can kill you. But to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Bring it on. How about this one? Satan may have the power to deceive, but Jesus has exposed Satan, exposed his schemes. 2 Corinthians 2.11, we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. Listen, Satan is a genius mastermind with thousands and thousands of years of practice deceiving. We're sitting here very calmly just saying, here's all the schemes. Here's what they are. We can put them on a whiteboard. Easy. We take them apart. Satan may have the power to persecute God's people, but he plays right into our hands. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What does that mean? That if you're persecuted for your faith, your faith has been proven to be genuine. Thank you, Satan, for proving to me I'm going to heaven. I appreciate that. In fact, 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7 says, We are thankful for the trials of persecution which burn us like fire, and yet we come out like gold. Why are we thankful? Because it proves our faith is real. Satan may have the power to indwell cities and nations. But 1 John 5.18 says that Christ protects those who are born of God and, quote, the evil one does not touch him. Satan may indwell cities. He may indwell nations. He may indwell the whole world, but he will never indwell you, ever. 1 John 4.4, again, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In fact, Jesus said in Mark 3, 27, that no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. In context, what Christ is saying is that Satan can indwell the believer just as soon as he can bind the Holy Spirit. And that will never happen. That's why the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your heart is so important because it means Satan can never get you, ever. But of course, we do face a spiritual battle. We want to fly down now into the trees a little bit. It gets a little more dangerous now. I want to talk about our battle in this age. Our battle in this age. We battle what some theologians have called the evil trinity of enemies. The evil trinity of enemies, Satan, the flesh, and the world. Satan, the flesh, and the world. Some of my reading... Most of the time, those three enemies are presented in a different order. In fact, the opposite order. That we battle the world, that's a big deal. We battle our own flesh, that's a big deal. And then Satan is sort of an afterthought. It's just the opposite. The world system is Satan's system, and Satan is the master of temptation, even using our own sin natures against us at times. And so let's go in that order. 
our battle in this age. Who's our first enemy? Well, our first enemy is Satan. The Apostle Paul said that Satan hindered him in the work of the ministry. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul says, We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. It's a word that means thwarted our plans. We're not told how Paul knew that. We assume by revelation from Christ as he was an apostle. He also expressed concern that Satan not take advantage of the Corinthian church, the believers in the church of Corinth. 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. He didn't want them to be outwitted. It's a word that means defrauded or exploited at your place of weakness. He didn't want that to happen. Of course, we've already mentioned the necessity of the full armor of God in Ephesians 6. We recall verse 10, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So how do you stand against this? Because ironically, by definition, if you're being fooled, you don't know it. So how do you stand? You only stand one way, and that is with truth. Truth through the Word of God, going from five seconds in the Word to five minutes in the Word to five hours in the Word to five days in the Word to five months in the Word to five uh, years in the Word to five decades in the Word to the last five minutes of your life, hopefully, in the Word. That's how you stand. You know the truth. But there's a second enemy Satan uses, and that is the flesh. The flesh. The New Testament uses this term to speak of the Christian's capacity and tendency towards sin. Romans 7, 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So we have this battle between the two natures that we have, right? We have our old fallen nature that we got from Adam. Thank you very much, Adam. And then we have the new nature we've received in salvation. We have the mind of Christ. Paul outlined this war in Galatians 5.17. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, let me just take a little side note here. This does not mean that you can go through the rest of your life and every time you decide to do something idiotic, stupid, and sinful, you can say, ah, the devil made me do it. No, can't do that. You have a will. You have the Spirit of God. Win the battle. Win the battle. But how does Satan interact with your flesh? Uh, Like, if you're about to do something terrible, does your hand suddenly start going towards it? Oh, no, I can't stop it. What am I going to do? No, no. He places situations in front of you that cater to your greatest weaknesses. All he has to do is watch you for a couple of decades and see, I know exactly how to nail this guy and I can plant a trap five years from now that's going to get him. I'll never forget my own former pastor preaching to spouses saying, if you don't love your wife, Satan has a man who will. And if you don't respect your husband, Satan has a woman who will. He makes a plan. He looks ahead to your greatest weaknesses and he puts the noose, he puts the trap and he waits for you to step in it and he pulls it. And the thing is, if it's in your flesh, you'll go along with it. What are you most vulnerable to? That's where he's aiming. And there's a third enemy and that is the world. Satan's system and worldview which is godless and against everything that God is Jesus told his disciples that they would continue 
having conflict with the world. He said in John 15, beginning in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The person who claims to be in Christ and yet all of your best friends who you're closest to and you feel the most comfortable with are unbelievers, stop fooling yourself. The world ought to hate you. It's not that we want all unbelievers to, to just hate our guts, but it is there is a reaches a point where they become uncomfortable with you because your priorities are different. And that the world it holds attractions, it holds allure for the Christian. First John two fifteen says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We could spend a whole series just on this, on warnings about the world. How about our educational system? Be careful. Our educational system promotes the scam of evolution, which is anti-God. It promotes the denigrating of all authority. I mean, for the last couple of decades, kids are never disciplined in school because the school systems have now adopted a system by which whiny, rebellious behaviors of children are catered to. Well, those kids are now adults leading riots. Because they were taught that when you throw tantrums, you get your way. How about business opportunities? I've spoken to many of you about this. Business opportunities which force you into incredibly worldly situations. And if you're going to make the sale, you're going to have to interact with people in drinking parties. You're going to have to interact with the opposite sex in ways you ought not to be. All for the promise of lots of money and success to get that bigger house, to get one more car, to get more money in the bank to get your IRA really stocked up so that you can stop trusting the Lord and, stop trust, and start trusting that. It's all for nothing. How about the entertainment world in which the unwary Christian participates with no discernment, no thought as to whether they're being duped, what's going into your mind. If your entertainment habits are exactly the same as all your worldly neighbors, what's the difference? What, what difference has been made in your heart? How about the fashion world? Every year, especially in the United States of America, we, we have this hook stuck in our mouths that makes us go buy what everyone else says we're supposed to buy. Even if it's completely violating the Scripture's strong warnings about modesty and care and how you dress. How about how we raise our children? Every time the world makes a choice for you by means of pressure or culture, you've said, ah, oh, the world knows what it's talking about. If your rationale for parenting is that's what all her friends are doing, then you just gave up the high ground. You gave up the high ground. If you're parenting according to Scripture and you're trying desperately to go against the world, honestly, your family is going to be thought of as kind of the weirdos of the block, right? If you fit right into everybody else, something's wrong. If people walk by and kind of scoot by your house just a little bit, man, you might be doing something right. I want to take a little time and do one more, if we could. I want to look to the next age. I want to look to the next age. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. We won't take much longer. Acts 15. What is the purpose of this age? The purpose of this age that we're in is to call a people out from the Gentiles to be the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly of Christ. We're the congregation of Jesus Christ. Different from, related to, but different from Israel. We're the congregation of Christ. 
Acts 15 describes both this age and the next. Acts 15, beginning in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, this is speaking of Peter, by the way. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. He's the one, Peter's the one, who first saw the Holy Spirit being given to the Gentiles. This was new. God was creating a people for himself from those who were not Jews. What happens next? After God has built a people from the Gentiles, that's the age we're in now. Verse 15, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this. After what? After the building of the people from Gentiles. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. What's happening now? After this, I will return. This is the return of Christ to restore Israel, the tent of David. And then in verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What is the purpose of a restored Israel? It is to preach Messiah to the remnant of mankind. Who is this? That in this kingdom age, those who survived the great tribulation on earth will continue to have children. These children, over a thousand years, will be told by Israel, you must worship Christ. And now Israel, for the first time in history, is fulfilling her duty to be a kingdom of priests. But the next age can't come until something bad happens, right? We already saw that. Until the breaking and demolishing of all other kingdoms. We get a prophetic picture of this demolition in Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This current age cannot be the age of Messiah because the nations are still doing what they want. They're not broken, and the king isn't here yet. So what about the next age? How do we look to the next age? Well, the Old Testament is full of prophecies about the next age. Israel restored as God's chosen nation, purified Gentile nations worshiping Christ, Zechariah 14. And the earth will experience a renewal of the actual nature of the earth like we've never seen before. Look, all the environmentalists, just relax. It's going to be okay. Christ is coming. I'd like to take a moment And I want to bring you into the next age. And I just want to read the Bible to you. I just want you to hear what the Bible says about the next age, what we have to look forward to. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. In other words, the ox isn't worried that it's going to be dinner. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Hosea 2.18, and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. You can go anywhere on earth in safety. How about Joel 3.18? 
And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and the fountains shall come forth from the house of the Lord. Great, tremendous prosperity worldwide. Zechariah 2, beginning in verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, that is Jerusalem. For behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. How about this one? Zechariah 8.23, talk about Israel being preeminent. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew and say, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 18, Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days. Zero infant mortality or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. How will you know when somebody is unsaved? Oh, he only lived to be a hundred They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. How about Isaiah 35, beginning in verse 5? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. There won't be any more disability. No more handicap. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The Engedi wilderness will be a wonderful stream. The, the wilderness of Kadesh Barnea where God's people wandered for 40 years. An amazing uh, place of garden beauty. How about the entire Sahara which is getting lower and lower on a map. It's a place of beauty. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Would you like to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? No, I already know him. Come on in. Well, I'm going to go next. I need to share the gospel. Good luck with that. Everybody loves Christ. Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Merry Christmas, but now we move forward. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And listen to this, of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. Isaiah eleven twelve. he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And Micah 4, 3 and 4, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. I've preached hundreds of times on fear there will be a day where that is no longer necessary now what makes all that 
possible in the next age? What makes this incredible prosperity where every man is under his vine and under his fig tree, where the nations are not fighting one another, where the nations come to worship Christ in Jerusalem, and, and when the sinners do get out of hand just a little bit, the Lord Jesus Christ judges them immediately, that there's peace everywhere, and everyone you know knows the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can send your two-year-old out into the backyard to go play with all the cobras. And when the lions and the lambs are lying down together, and this world is beautiful, and everywhere you go, there's, there's no lack of anything, and it's gorgeous, and the, the flora and the fauna just overwhelming you with beauty. What made that possible? Revelation 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. The red guy is going down. That's what makes it possible. And we've never experienced that. We're going to look around and go, a Satanless world is incredible. This is my father's world. But we're not there yet. Oh, wait a minute, Steve. We're still here. I know. So what do you do in the meantime? What do you do in the meantime? Two things. First of all, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not experience that world. You will not experience that age. You will instead be locked up until such time that you are released to face the white hot judgment of Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment who will open the books of your life according to Revelation 20 and read off every sinful thought, every sinful deed, every sinful word and you will be justly condemned. You will not have the opportunity to defend yourself. You will not be able to say, but God, I did this. You will be silenced according to Romans 3 before God. You will say nothing until he grabs you and throws you into, with your resurrected body for the purpose of experiencing this, into the lake of fire which burns forever and ever. If you want to experience the coming kingdom of Christ, you need to become a kingdom citizen now because it will be too late then. That's the first thing to do. If you already know Christ, what do we do in the meantime? James 4, 7 tells us, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Two parts to this. Submit yourselves to God. What does this involve? It means completely breaking down yourself. It means total confession. It means total humility. If you think you're being humble, then confess your pride that you thought you were being humble. Get on your face before God and beg him to help you see the truth, to help you not to be fooled, not to be tricked. Beg for wisdom to help you act in the way that is Christ-like. Study the word intensely and thoroughly and be in prayer. Submit to God. And the second part, resist the devil. What does this mean? It's a Greek word that means oppose him. Do the opposite of him. Whatever the devil would have you do, do the other thing. Why is that hard? Because whatever the devil would have you do is generally what you want to do. So do the other. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. And what will happen? He will flee from you. And you will say, get out of here. Get out of here. Well, next time, we're going to look at Satan's deception. 
and how he counterfeits the very best things of God. And that's one of the ways that we can be prepared to know our enemy. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful to you this day. For the Lord's day, we are thankful to you for the truth of God's word that although Satan, our enemy, the evil one, the God of this world, the ruler of this world, is a diabolical genius with far more power, far more knowledge, far more presence than we have. And yet, by merely opening our Bibles, we are completely armed to resist the schemes of the evil one. Might we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Might we keep our eyes on Christ? Might we be those that fulfill Colossians 1.28? Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is our prayer. Help us to be vigilant, to be wary, to be watchful, to have our joy in Christ, not in our own intellect, not in our own ability to figure anything out, but to do what Proverbs 3 tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. We ask this for the glory of and to the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.